Hello. Hello. Welcome to Index for Continuance, a podcast of the CSU Poetry Center. I'm Zach Peckham. I'm Hilary Plum. And we're here in the large concrete tower downtown Cleveland, Ohio, USA. This episode that we're about to present to you <laughs> is with uh, Matt Weinkam and Michelle Smith of Literary Cleveland, which is a local literary arts organization that does a lot of cool work in Cleveland um, in terms of programming and teaching classes and events, right? That's yeah. what they do. Is that a good And summary? we'll introduce them in the episode. That's true. But they're, that's who they are. That is. <laughs> Just so everyone knows. That is knows. who they are. <laughs> good. Um, I think in keeping with how we're going to do these intros, in the spirit of the index for continuance, we will continue to add to our index. For continuance. Thereby continuing it. Yeah, yeah. It all lines up. Uh, we didn't have that many words for this index installation. More like questions, I feel like, but questions are made of words, right? <laughs> Should I say the first one? Wait, where were we going to start? Should we start with just like, we could just start with CMSD. Yeah. Because that's an acronym. But also this depends on whether you think numbers go before the alphabet or after. Because we have numbers in this one. I guess technically we start with a 990. Let's do that then. Numbers become, wait, numbers come before letters. Numbers become in letters. In traditional All right. alphabetization. All right, let's 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 begin there, in tradition. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll start with 990, uh, a term that came up here that maybe bears further defining. Um, but it definitely belongs on this index because a 990 is uh, an IRS-issued piece of financial documentation that uh, a nonprofit 501c3 organization uses basically to sum up what their operating budget is. Um, any organization of a nonprofit nature, be it literary or arts or literary arts or otherwise, always has to provide a 990 when um, pursuing grant funding. It's kind of like the first thing you need. Uh, it's kind of also something of like a badge of uh, or stamp of legitimacy for a nonprofit. Uh, and also typically, um, something I actually didn't know until recently, nonprofit organizations normally have to make 990s publicly available. And by normally, I mean they have to. <laughs> so, so if you're curious. Yeah, if you're ever curious. Yeah, it's, it's fun looking up 990s. Okay, we got the numbers. Because this is an episode featuring a local literary arts organization, um, we refer to a lot of kind of people, presses, entities in Northeast Ohio and Cleveland. One of them is the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Um, I think Michelle mentions the writer Cortez Harris and his book, We Made It to School Alive. Um, right. He's a local writer. We also, a few other local writers and presses come up and we'll link to their um, stuff. In, in the text for this episode. I think we talk about Kevin Latimer and Greenland. We talk about the poet Russell Atkins. So we'll put some links in there so you can learn more about those writers. And maybe kind of related to that, we ended up thinking about you know regionalism and regional writing as a concept when we were preparing this intro or thinking about this index. Yeah. Um, and thinking about that as a, as a concept that the small press 
helps address or envision or is one role that a small press can play is serving a region in particular. Um, but we were also thinking about how that, you know, term regional writing, you know, isn't as widely used at the moment. Um, and so, you know, that sort of way of valuing the small press and what it's offering to a particular community maybe isn't quite as visible Mm -hmm. at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. In that, uh, you know, the sort of invocation of regionalism, I think, can be, like, difficult or, like, touchy, right? Like, it can seem, like, on the one side of it, to say, to embrace regionalism, right, is would seem to be exclusionary. Um, in the case of, like, Literary Cleveland and, like, CSU Poetry Center and all of us, like, we are doing a lot of work that we view as sort of, like, on behalf of or in service to or as a product of the region that we're in uh so like on the other side of it it, like region region or regionalism is just sort of like a fact of i mean a fact of life a fact of like cultural production right Mm -hmm. something that lends to um like variety of aesthetics and sensibilities um and when applied to literature is often you know it's almost like the term small press, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think if a, if a press or a journal announces its regional focus or affiliation, um, you know, to the outside that could seem like it's like limiting or uh, almost, it's almost like it's like making itself smaller <laughs> somehow mm-hmm. or, or it's sort of anti-aspirational to mm-hmm. be regional, um, which is maybe because to have, you know, seen like real success or something one would have to have like transcended the regional label to then become national Mm -hmm. uh and it's often the case that region is you know like there's a point where it becomes more of almost like a genre descriptor right um than something that's actually like really intrinsic to the work itself uh but i think this just like points to that this was something that we were like, should we put region in the index? And it was hard because we actually like had trouble defining region, you know, because it seems like it's, it's so slippery and yet it is also like telling, right. To sort of like examine how that word is used and like what it signals. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like, it seems exciting, um, in these conversations to try to you know, politically reactivate that word or see how it's being used or how people are thinking about it Um, in terms of, like, you know, teaching small press publishing. You know, one ends up (laughs) having a lot of thoughts and feelings about empowering people in regions kind of outside New York or people, um, you know, thinking of the regional in terms of, like, a grassroots empowerment um, that means that all of our media isn't centered in a few cities um, in New York and L.A. and and in Silicon Valley. Like, so in that sense, the region, you know, becomes a sort of, like, positive organizational tool um, for kind of empowering everyday people outside of these centers of, you know, media and capital. Right. And just to offer an alternative to like a mean, a more like a finer alternative to just like the idea of like the national, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Which like the regional is part of, but different than, Yeah, you know what I mean? And the national is made up of, we would hope a lot of like regions, but that's like actually not really how it turns out. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not as if like, it's really all aggregated on some level. It doesn't all sort of bubble up. 
yeah to hang out yeah. together which is fine <laughs> i mean i guess we can know the obvious thing that you know local independent regional media all of that has eroded a lot and a lot of yeah you know, a lot of local media is now owned by national franchises that have particular and na- national agenda rather than mm serving their constituents or um, including those voices so right. you know one question facing more regional uh you know cultural organizations is kind of to fill fill the needs um people there that may not be being filled by national media um mm-hmm. by national arts organizations totally we started we got to region the other one that came up do you want to do you want to talk about the other Community. Yeah, the other really slippery one. (laughs) We talk a lot about community in this episode and probably in all of them. I mean, community is one of those, you know, buzzwords now that starts to seem like it means, could mean almost nothing, like, because it can mean anything anyone wants it to mean in any moment. Like, how do we, like, ground it or make it useful again? I think this conversation people have some pretty concrete meanings of community and they also they mean you know this area (laughs) they mean um and they're thinking about like the needs of readers and writers and people here and so answering to some specific ideas of community um you know maybe one like (laughs) thought about community is to always get it as specific as possible or have people you particularly mean in mind rather than envisioning vaguely an idea of the community um i think that's right yeah and maybe that helps to me that kind of like mirrors the same sort of like problems with like talking about region Mm -hmm. you know um but it also offers like another like another finer level of like delineation right because i guess if we're if we're trying to just uh make a scale map of the universe here it's like you know within regions there are communities right but some of those communities go beyond regions too so it's it to your point i think it's really like crucial that like invocation of that word be like well considered and that maybe that one have the ability to actually say what that community is which i think you know you're saying it's a word that uh, or a term that can you know is sort of used so frequently it, it comes to almost mean nothing mm-hmm. i think that's because it like it kind of really it invokes like a sense of like ethic or like certain values um which like that's nice but but what are they exactly right it's like so in in what direction for whom (laughs) uh of value to whom for what yeah i mean i guess like community you know is something you're supposed to make right or it takes activity or to be in community it requires yeah. a practice or mm. requires doing something, um, you know, versus obviously like an idea of like the region, which is more mm-hmm. just about where you, where you find yourself or where you're from. Yeah. But so I think, you know, the question facing organizations like, like Cleveland and presses like, you know, is like, what community are we making? What communities are we serving? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the practices through which we try to do those things? Um, yeah. do they work? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so maybe, you know, in this podcast, we'll keep pressing on that word. We have to. Investigating we, yeah, it. Yeah, we started. Uh, we have to <laughs> just keep going. And seeing what it could and should mean. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's everyone's favorite word for grant applications and if, such. Yeah, like if you, oh, you, if you care about communities, you must be a good person. <laughs> yeah. And, and you must have only the best intentions yes. in mind. For your communities. Yeah. But like just, you know, but 
I think too that when we think of like what like a small press is, right? I think it is tied to some relationship to, you know, regardless of what the specific community is, to like the idea of community, mm-hmm. community building. You know, like you're saying that like, you know, one way we can think of small press publishing as one valuation we can put place on it right or a way of seeing it as valuable is in the way in which like it becomes a way uh a type of community right uh community making act um what that community is made up of it, you know has to do with both people and places as well as like values so it's cool because i feel like that makes it adaptable and like ever-changing to probably like every kind of press which like now I'm just thinking about how like you know we keep saying like small press and I think it's another word that within you know with within that term right there are so many like subdivisions and ways of thinking about it um community is just like the same way right but it seems like inextricable from what a small press is in the way that like we think of it or want to explore it yeah and in small presses it's like writers are part of the same world and plane and horizontally connected to their readers, which is different, right? In hmm. in bigger media, right, it's a celebrity culture. Like, the writers or creators, you know, whatever, are far away, and people are fans of them, but that's not really exactly a community, right? Like, right. it's not mutual, or it doesn't go back and forth, whereas the idea of small press community means that writers and readers and editors are all in something together. They're mm-hmm. relating to each other. They're building something together. Um, that's cool, yeah. Versus, you know, something that's about, like, hierarchy or, like, getting to um, rise above. Yeah. Or just, like, system at all, maybe, necessarily. Or output. I don't know. All right, let's not lose the thread. And then the other word. Oh, jobs. Yeah, jobs. We like this word. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that jobs are wrapped up in the same package as region and community in a lot of ways. Uh, The way in which we talk about jobs with Matt and Michelle, I think, has to do with making a living uh and i think doing some kind of like community work or like regionally focused work uh obviously we're thinking about working in literary arts and programming and education but we do talk about how sort of like the state of that or the conditions of that uh feel like increasingly uh, d- uh, difficult or complicated or um, yeah. less and less tenable with time. I mean, we've talked about sort of we've used that word ad- adjunct before, right? Mm-hmm. To sort of describe um, some of those conditions, but like I think even outside of like the academy or whatever, there is still a lot of like difficulty. I mean, we're we're interested in sort of the nuts and bolts of how you know, all of our guests make their thing work, you yeah. know? And I think, yeah, jobs are just a practical part of it. When I listened back to this conversation, I realized I used the word hustle a couple of times, uh, and I felt a little embarrassed by it uh, be- because I, 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 f- I, was, I was worried it came off as, like, 
seeming like pro pro hustle i say like the sort of ad, adjunct plus part-time job hustle or something to that effect at one point um you know but we're we're not pro hustle here we're not pro hustle we in, we endure the hustle we suffer the hustle is we, that what yeah we suffer it we <laughs> suffer it <laughs> We're anti-grind culture. We just want that on the record. That's good, yeah. And that we were trying to figure out what was between anti and pro, and it was... Suffering. Yeah. Just suffering. It was suffering. (laughs) Cool. Good. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think... I just wanted to second what you said, which is like that I think I feel really interested to kind of get it all on the table of like how people make a life that includes writing and includes kind of making art with other people, making a small press. Um, And, you know, one traditional or recently traditional place that's happened is the Academy, but that's really been eroded um, and fragmented. So I'm, you know, we'll talk to as many people as possible about their jobs. Um, And it's like sometimes when you talk about like what jobs people are doing as writers, we end up using that phrase like day job as though like writing, you know, like writing is their true vocation. And it only happens at night. Yeah. It only happens (laughs) at night or like in the, in the morning or I guess like, um, but it doesn't, I understand that, but it also doesn't make sense because it's all your life. Right. And that, that work is somehow part of your writing life and your writing life is somehow part of that work. So I think it's, um, we'll continue to kind of rub at that word and see what we can get people to tell us about jobs um jobs yeah the jobs they've had um what structure of jobs yeah is kind of survivable and also like leaves people with the you know i I don't i don't even want to call it leisure time right it's the right eight hours for what you will right (laughs) it's it's a time to make other things you know that you that you are not going to sell right um so yeah jobs I'm fascinated by jobs. We we suffer them. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want, okay? You want to talk to Matt and Michelle now? We'll go talk to Matt and Michelle. So we're here with the writers and literary organizers Matt Weinkamp, Michelle Smith of Literary Cleveland or Lit Cleveland. Matt and Michelle are going to help us learn about everything they do there. But for people who don't know Lit Cleveland yet, uh, I'll also just share the short description from the website. Quote. Literary Cleveland is a nonprofit organization and creative writing center that empowers people to explore other voices and discover their own. Through an expanding roster of multi-level classes, workshops, and events, Literary Cleveland assists writers and editors at all stages of development, promotes new and existing literature of the highest quality, and advances Northeast Ohio as a vital center of diverse voices and visions." End quote. So to get things started, I wanted to ask you each to talk about your role at Lit Cleveland, like maybe what your workday looks like, and what part you play in this organization's operations and offerings. Um, and Matt, would you start us off? Sure. I'm the executive director of Literary Cleveland, which in a small arts nonprofit like ours means you do it all. You are helping program and run classes. It means you're doing development, grant writing, um, meeting and talking with donors. It means you are doing social media. You are cleaning up after an event like we had on Wednesday. It means, you know, you are packing up supplies. So um, for the right kind of person, that's an ideal role. It means you get to do a lot of everything and it means you um, never get bored with what you're doing either. So a typical day can look anything from um, sitting at home and writing a bunch of emails, which is what a lot of days look like, 
or it could look like Wednesday when we had a member mixer and had over a hundred people in this small space in bottle house brewery meeting for the first time since 2019 and getting together and getting to know each other too. Um, I'm, I want to hear Michelle talk about her role. Um, I am the programming associate and um, I'm in a sort of transitional space. Um, we just gained a programming coordinator. Uh, we're very excited. Shai Jeffries, who is going to take over a lot of the responsibilities for our paid classes. So we have classes scheduled throughout the year for fiction, nonfiction, poetry, uh, online, in person. And there's a lot of administrative uh, sort of responsibilities and tasks that go into that. So Shai's going to sort of take those over and I'm going to be doing more with our uh, partners, our community partners. So fee for service, uh, you know, when we get with another organization or another group and there's a service that they need, something that they want um, to do with writing or literature or literacy, and they're not equipped to do it. So they ask us to come in and do it for them. And also grant projects when we get with partners and imagine a new project that we wanna do, get the funding and then design it, plan it and implement it. So I'm sort of moving into that space uh, starting next year. But uh, like Matt, uh, minus the grant stuff. Uh, I, I, I do, you know, everything helps around the classes, answer the phones, answer the emails, help when we're at tabling at events, uh, all, all everything. And, and it's amazing. It's a perfect kind of combo of what I've done in the past as a writer and as a nonprofit worker and as a teacher. So uh, I really love it. That's awesome. Thank you guys. Thanks so much. Um, it's nice to just hear a little more about your day. Yeah, totally. Um, so I, I have this kind of like ongoing curiosity when it comes to folks who um, kind of like work in this space, right? Whether it's like an arts related thing or a programming thing, something community oriented um, or like particularly like publishing, um, like what what did you do that led you to that right like as like uh to try to pursue that professionally um and i i i don't know i always get the sense that folks often have like pretty diverse uh backgrounds you know sort of like leading into especially like the nonprofit world um and then like you know like obviously you're both writers but i would just love to hear um you both talk about just like what sort of like brought you to that and then sort of showed you that you could you know pursue publishing and local projects like this on like a in like a professional way right like you could sort of make it your life I'm, I'm tapping Michelle to go first on this one because Michelle has sort of like done all of these roles that are a perfect fit for where she is now cool uh, <laughs> so I was an English major I tried to declare my major the first week of my freshman year and they would not let me. They were like, just at least wait until you get back from Christmas break. But um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I've been a writer since I was nine and English is what I excelled at. But I knew that was the way that I would get through school. I didn't know uh, beyond that what I would do. I ended up staying at Case for the whole six years. I got the MA, I got out and I wanted to write. So I, I ended up writing for the Column Post 
then that intern, well, that job kind of ended and I was like, oh, what do I do next? I got an internship at Cleveland Metro Parks in the marketing department. So I was doing newsletters and I was doing ads. I wrote a coloring book. So I was doing that, you know, all I was able to write, but I was then in that sort of nonprofit community world and serving and Cleveland and all those things. So then I was at Policy Matters doing marketing when it was very small and it was just me and Zach and the former uh, ED, Amy. And again, I was writing emails and, and writing studies and editing and answering, you know, phones and doing the communication stuff and promo. And then I decided that I would go back for a PhD. I did not finish it. <laughs> much to my parents' despair, uh, <laughs> but it did get me to start teaching. And so I came into my work at Literary Cleveland from teaching. I, I was adjuncting at a couple of local universities, but uh, with that journalism experience, with that nonprofit experience, I did about eight months on the news desk at WKYZ. So uh, I, I had a sort of really eclectic mix of things that I could do. I started teaching at Literary Cleveland first. So I taught Colson Whitehead, I taught Toni Morrison, and then the job opened up. And when I read the description, I was like, oh, this allows me to do everything that I, what, what I, what I love to do and what I know how to do. And it was about, you know, sort of building up the community of writers in my city. Um, Cause I was born here. I, this is where I've always lived with the exception of Chicago for a little, a little bit of time. So it was a perfect sort of, you know, convergence. So the nonprofit work that I'd done, I was able to write because I had time to do that and able to help other writers, able to teach. And so every year I teach a class and I'm, and then I do all of my programming duties. So that's kind of how I ended up there is a very zigzag winding road that got me to a place where I think I'm sort of doing what I've always wanted to do. Cool. Yeah, there's, there's no dark path, right? That you're accumulating skills from these other roles that you have no idea are gonna be useful in some job later. And I like to think I'm perfectly suited for this role because I'm mediocre at everything. That that yes, you need you need someone who's just good enough. <laughs> Check of all trades. A lot of things, rather than very good at one thing. And so um, I came most directly, I think, from the university side of things. I went to two different graduate schools and um, was a TA there and did adjuncting and taught abroad for a while. And in those roles. In addition to you know refining the teaching skills, there were also opportunities to develop curriculum and think about at the university level, how do a sequence of classes help people gain skills and grow as writers, as artists, as thinkers, um, and perhaps build a career afterwards too. And so, you know, at the time it was like, oh, you get paid extra to help with this process, then I'll do it. <laughs> Not realizing that's skills training for a role like this. Um, similar, I was managing editor at Passages North, um, which you all know from sort of the editing side of things is not just working on the writing or accepting it, but is also the coordination of the system, um, which can involve solicitation, which can involve um, coordinating the multiple readers, um, bringing people together to make decisions on what's going to happen and then creating a beautiful product too. Like it's not just the writing, but it's like, how does the piece, how does the 
tangible product actually look and then marketing and selling that too, which um, small presses and literary journals don't have the same resources for. And so you have to be really creative and also pull on the talents of the people around you. And so, oh, this person actually has a fun side gig doing sort of like cut out copy and paste photocopier posters for bands. And what if we pulled them in to do that for our, you know, upcoming reading for a literary journal, or we're going to make a thousand of those for AWP, what we're going to go to. And so you start to realize, oh, I'm not just creating a journal, but I'm learning marketing skills and I'm learning coordination and community building. And, um, and so those sort of things along the way um, led to a job like this. And then most recently when I moved to Cleveland, it was, I was sort of in a situation where I chose the city and, and found a job as a choose, as opposed to finding a job. And then you're in rural Kansas, which some of my friends are and are enjoying it, but that's a different, <laughs> a different path too. Um, and once I knew we were here, I was just like hungry. I was like, I went to every single thing in town that I could and just um, soaked it all up, volunteered for as much as I could. Um, and was that guy that just wouldn't stop showing up that um, <laughs> literally Cleveland was still forming at this time. So that we got our 501c3 in 2016, which is right when I arrived in town. And so they needed bodies. It was just like on a programming committee or to help set up an event, or um, I eventually got to teach classes too. And then on the programming committee, committee we're thinking about how do we sequence in classes in such a way that people can build skills? And you're like, oh, I did this before. I've done this kind of work. So um, yeah, nothing purposeful at all. And when I first moved to town and literally Cleveland was around, I was like, oh, that'd be great in 10 years or so when they've grown to the size that they can hire somebody new if I could get a job there. And then like a year later, a job opened up. And then a year after that, the executive director stepped down and I was promoted. So it can happen much faster than you think. That's cool. Uh, yeah, I love the uh, I love the mediocre at everything <laughs> idea. You know, I think that's just like very uh, relatable. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I mean, I love just hearing both of your sort of like, you know, the things that like got you to this place that, you know, you wasn't like fully formed, right? It sort of like took shape over time. And I don't know, I maybe I have this like half cooked theory about I don't know. I don't know what it says about like liberal arts or education or art in general or some larger thing, but like somehow like I feel like becoming like particularly like activated and like like down to do the work in sort of like publishing adjacent or arts programming adjacent roles. It's this weird sort of like um I don't want to call it like a net or like a drain, <laughs> but like you know, you, you hear like the adage about how like working and it's not the same thing at all. I'm not trying to make an analogy, but like, you know, working, like becoming a line cook or like working in a kitchen, right? Is sort of like, it's the, it's the sort of catch all for like all the sort of like miscreants, right? Who just like couldn't <laughs> quite make it work in society, um, which I don't know, I'm quoting some like kitchen confidential thing or something, but like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I don't know if it's like valid yet. Maybe I'm still testing it, but I, I have this like gentle theory that like a lot of folks, not everyone, certainly you can't generalize, but like a lot of folks doing, I think like really great work, um, like with publishing, with literary arts, with um, like community nonprofit <laughs> stuff. Uh, I don't know, are like 
in in like a a, a version of that boat, <laughs> right? Which isn't to say we're all like aimless or something. It's just like we love something, we have a passion for something that isn't like I don't know wanted or like welcome or certainly not funded in the same way right so it's we have to like find these weird ways of doing it and it's almost like through that hustle that you I think you're both kind of saying like you develop these other like skills that further down the line become really important I just think that sadly still we don't necessarily talk to young people about art as like a viable path forward you know, like yeah. we don't, you know, we're not in schools, we're not making artists, we're not educating artists. And so I think when you file, like you said, you kind of realize you are an artist. And for a lot of people, that realization comes at a really young age. There's no very set sort of path, no patented path to follow. Uh, and so you do, I think, by necessity, end up taking jobs that get you, you know, you can do some of what you like or you can use the degree that you have or the diploma that you have, the academic skills that you have. And if you're lucky, like Matt said, you accumulate all this experience and you and you have all these skills and then an opportunity. And it's usually a very unique one. <laughs> a singular kind of opportunity pops up and you're in the right place at the right time and able to, you know, grab it and 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 sort of, you know, embody it. And, and so, I, yeah, I think that's true. I, when I was younger, I wanted to be a filmmaker. And I remember my parents being, I wanted to be like the feminist answer to Spike Lee. And my parents were like, <laughs> no, we're sending you to school to get a job, yes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, you know, uh, so they were also really happy when I got this job because they said, they were like, this is the kind of job that you should have. You know, if I had yeah. gone into corporate something or I wouldn't have been happy and suited to it. So I think there is something to that gentle theory, <laughs> for sure. It's very generous. <laughs> I wanna I wanna throw two two things in towards that too that I'm curious to get your thoughts on as well. One is the um you know, not all writers or artists necessarily want to do the administrative work, the like editing, teaching, programming marketing, community building are all separate skills, like they're related skills. Mm -hmm. um, but not everyone wants to do that. Like some people just want to write. Um, and for some people, the teaching is like pulling teeth or the administrative work or like putting together an event is like, don't ask me to like, that sounds like the worst thing in the world. So you have to want to do those things to some extent, I think, to be in roles like this. I've noticed many people don't want to answer emails, for example. <laughs> so. If we could get rid of that as a mode of communication, how much happier, how much lighter would you feel? That's <laughs> true, yeah. And then the I second thing I'm curious about is like the, then the um, boring, awful capitalism economics of it, which is yeah. that all, almost all arts related jobs exist in precarity. And so how many people, especially even now that there's sort of this erosion of the middle of academic teaching that it's either a tenure track, which is such a small pool of people or it's adjunct and there's no longer a middle way that people can exist or climb up mm -hmm. that all these roles are precarious. And so if you don't have generational wealth or a safety net or the sort of like 
dumb young person confidence that you're just going to succeed no matter what, um, then, then a lot of really great people are going to find work elsewhere where there's more security. And so we yeah. lose those people to, to other jobs in the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it seems to, I, you know, maybe this is a bit of a like larger conversation, but it feels like, um, you know, in a, in a kind of traditionally pretty anti-intellectual culture, right? That like, there isn't the same kind of recognition for jobs in the arts and for work in the arts. And there's even weirdly these these ways that the anti-intellectualism like pops up when you least expect it or like an idea that like a real writer wouldn't also teach or something. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> and Or that like, it, there's a like purity to artistic practice that means it would be removed from the world rather than being like in the mix and being that part of your artistic practice might be about collaboration and working yeah. with community and using those things like Michelle when you were talking about um you know kind of like identifying your skills and interests and then finding those roles you're like yeah that's the same it I was like that's the same set of skills that makes you like you know good at identifying an artistic project or what you're going to do you know what you're going to work yeah. on yeah, it, also, I, but right. it was really, I think you're, you're right. It was very difficult for me to recognize myself as a writer because I, like you said, I didn't just write, you know, I I, I wasn't a person that said, I'm going to go to New York and freelance and like, you know, busk and do poems in the subway <laughs> and be like a starving artist or, you know, um, it's a, I, I grew up, my parents were, uh, educated people. My mom is an English professor. My dad is a lawyer. And as you know, boomers and civil rights kids, they wanted me to be very comfortably middle class and to have you know a job and a home and a 401k and health insurance. And so that's how they raised me. And so it was very difficult for me to, like you said, claim that identity of writer because I had the idea in my head, like you said, that a writer was somebody that purely wrote. They wrote to support themselves. And I had all these different jobs because I couldn't find anything that quite fit because I am, I'm a writer and I am an artist. And so the jobs were in a lot of ways uh, constricting or confining or, you know, sort of not as satisfying because they didn't sort of use everything that I had. That part of me was always laid to the side. And so, but I think you're right. I, I do think that some of what sort of keeps people from exploring all the things that you can do in this space of literature and publishing and editing is the idea that if I'm a writer, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but I think if you, if you want to preserve these spaces or you want to create these spaces, um, you know, or you want to make sure that there's a certain kind of life in these spaces, then you do have to maybe broaden your concept and, and participate in the spaces as more than just a writer. Yeah. And it's like, so many, you know, things that we know are like deeply, vitally human and valuable. Like, okay, like being a parent or being like, uh, like wife or husband or partner or being like, you know, a gardener, things like that. You're like, we don't need people to do them 100% of the time and be winning awards for them <laughs> all the time in order for those roles and practices um, right. experiences to be like legitimate and to be making something, right? And to be making something... For, the, for yourself and for the people around you and in your life. Um, and Michelle, I was thinking too, like, I also started a PhD program and then dropped out. Um, but I'll, as one friend politely referred to it, 
finished. Um, <laughs> and I was like, you're going to finish one way or the other. And you're like, oh, I just finished early, you know, like, um, and I'm thinking like, you know, people are like we're always tracking like what are the professional outcomes of people with PhDs, which I think is very important to track in this, you know, age of austerity and cutting the humanities. But you're like, what about the professional pathways of people who dropped out? You know, I was like, I think we're doing awesome. You know, like you just get this release when you eject yourself from yeah. you know, well, this kind of set pathway and into back into the world where you're going to kind of scan and find and your place. Find something. I, the reason that I quit is because I had one of my professors pulled me into her office when I was getting ready to take my exam and said, you know, um, you don't, you know, you're an amazing student because I just happen to be. And she was like, but you don't seem as sort of passionate as some of your cohort members. So I just want to say, this is a process. Uh, I won't say what university I was going to that because this probably is going to sound awful, that usually takes our students 10 to 12 years to finish. So 10 to 12 years to finish this English PhD. She was like, but because of the trends in English academia, when you get out, it's very likely that you'll only be able to be an adjunct Mm -hmm. and you can adjunct with a master's degree and you already have one. Mm -hmm. So before you sort of set out for this odyssey, that's going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and take perhaps a decade you can do that work now. And so when she said that, I was like, oh, and then I did. So I, I, because I had my master's at 23. And so I came back from Chicago. Uh, we had a family crisis and then I had my kid and, you know, and then I just decided it was, it, it made more sense for me to go to work than to continue to be in school. So you're absolutely right. It, you, you just kind of eject yourself and then other possibilities open up. I was adjuncting, but I wasn't tenure track and I was not going to be tenure track. So I was very open for something else to do. People uh, who don't know how adjuncting works uh, have no idea how just very like arduous and, and <laughs> debilitating it is. So I was ready for an opportunity like the one that came up at the lit. Well, maybe this is a time to ask my next official question, (laughs) which was, it's a question I love asking people about their jobs, even though I think I might be stressed out if someone asked it to me, but, (laughs) um, which is just like, what especially excites you about your work at Lit Cleveland? Like, when do you feel most fired up about um, your job there or like something that's happening? Long, long pause. <laughs> we'll, we'll edit that down. Don't worry. Oh, yeah. It'll be. <laughs> <laughs> As though I had an answer instantly at the ready. Um, you know, I, I think maybe speaking to what we've been talking about, it's helping writers find pathways outside of the academy that it's so, first of all, it's unique in human history that that academy pathway exists. And it's really a benefit that it does and that both Michelle and I took different versions of that to go through undergraduate and master's programs and get experience with writing and they get to work with amazing people. Like there's so much that's valuable about those um, pathways, but not everybody can get an MFA and um, certainly almost no one can get a tenure track teaching job. So how do you um, help writers develop and advance and um, find careers outside of that? And when those things, when we when we create more pathways, or you see someone succeeding in the pathways that you created, I think that's when it gets most exciting. And so, um, 
Stephanie Genese, who you both know, who um, worked at 12 Literary Arts, is now at Spaces, just published a remarkable poetry collection. Um, one of the sparks that set her off was attending a free literary Cleveland class at a public library taught by Keisha Nicole Foster. And so she saw that there's this free poetry class in her area and went, and that took her on the path that led to these jobs and that book. And that, if that class, if Keisha had not been there that day, if that class had not gotten set up with the library, you know, I'm sure Stephanie would still be doing great things, but you make those opportunities possible. And when I first arrived to Cleveland, I saw um, R.A. Washington on a panel about activism, and he set out some like principles that he uses to um, think about his work. And one of the ones that really stuck with me was like the um, the consistency one that you can you can go you can burn bright and fast <laughs> and try to do something really big and have it fall apart really quickly. Um, but the things that really make a difference are the ones that can be sustainable. And if you can just, I think this was his example, all you could do is um, scrap together a couple um, used laptops and computers from friends, and you've got a random space that you can open up for three hours a day, three days a week. And you keep that going, as opposed to, I'm going to start a, you know, a media center that is going to raise a billion, you know, like, if you just do that, um, then you never know the next day, if you had tried to go too big too fast and you closed, the next day someone might have come in that would have needed that service that would have made a real difference. If you can just stick through it and you can keep those pathways going, keep those opportunities available, um, that's how some really big changes can happen. And so when we set up, new, so this year we set up a couple of new programs that um, we hope are gonna be those kind of things. Um, scholarships for our classes, which mean that people who have lower limited income can attend without pay, which is spectacular to finally be able to offer that. Um, and a year long writing residency where you have one-on-one -on -one mentorship with a writer to work on a book length project. And it's for people who don't have MFAs and have not published before. And six writers get to go through that every year. And we got the first two years of funding already secured. So we get to do this twice. And if you can keep that going, it's um, an MFA outside the MFA for people who have kids who have jobs. And so to see successes from groups like that, man, when I hear about <laughs> what one last example, which is that we had our member mixer Wednesday night, and one of the people who read um, had attended our Flash Nonfiction Festival last fall, and in uh, or Flash Fiction in the spring, and, and had um, written a Flash Fiction piece with Kathy Fish, and then had that piece accepted for Gordon Square Review on our ed editorial mentorship program, which is also unique. Most literary journals say they want new writers, first-time writers, but then, you know, don't publish many of them. <laughs> Gordon Square yeah. Review has a process in which um, they, every, each one of the editors accepts a piece that's not quite ready for publication, but that is going to require some work. Most journals don't have the time to work with people in that in-depth, but we pick one person each time. Um, and so this writer started a piece in that flash fiction workshop, got work with um, the editor, Gordon Square, to get that piece ready for publication, and then read it in front of a room of like 150 people at our member mixer. And it's like, that person's going to go places now. Like, that's <laughs> that's what I'm just like, it's happening. It's The work is happening, and I get excited. How is it on me? If you want. <laughs> it's all no. there. Um, yeah. 
I, I just have to echo Matt. Um, I was at Mass Hysteria, which is like this uh, comedy festival for women. Um, and there was a storytelling sort of element and Liz Roccaforte, uh, who was, uh, she had taken a class with Dana Norris who runs Story Club Cleveland um, <clears throat> and is also an instructor for the lit. And so she, read this story about losing her son. It's just amazing story. And everybody in this space was in tears. I mean, like she just brought us to our knees. It was so beautifully crafted and she read it with so much heart. And um, afterwards, I, you know, I just went up to thank her for sharing because it was this really just, you know, really poignant story and it's very personal. And um, I introduced myself and I was like, you know, I, I'm Michelle or Cleveland, blah, 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 blah. And I was going to ask her to teach for us. And she was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I took Dana's class. That's where I birthed this this piece. And it, and like Matt said, to, to, to be helping in some way to get that kind of art out into the world is so special. It's like it's my favorite thing. So I, I like the next day in our staff meeting, I was like, oh, my God, Matt. <laughs> that was amazing. And and then Liz actually, we invited Liz to read at our fundraiser last year. So, or is it this year? It was earlier this year. Yeah. So it, it's that. It, it's it's playing just that that tiny part in helping people to do what I feel like they probably were born to do. I remember that story. I was at I was at the fundraiser this year. Um, so yeah, just seconding all of that. Um, I wanted to ask you, you guys already spoke to this really beautifully, so I'll just maybe follow up on it. I wanted to talk about kind of the regional role of Lit Cleveland. Um, you know, obviously it's there in the name and it's in that, even that short mission statement I just read, there's kind of like two different ways that it's the regional role shows up. I mean, first, as you both just spoke to really wonderfully, this um, kind of role, opportunity, responsibility to um, help local readers and writers develop their skills, connect with each other, um, like create a new project that's been kind of lurking in them, um, get involved, have some fun, maybe start publishing their work or finding new ways that they're going to contribute to kind of local or even national sort of literary and cultural life. Um, but also, if I understand right, you know, from that statement, like Cleveland's kind of looking to recognize and promote the writing of this region to wider audiences, you know, both like promoting local writers in this community, maybe promoting local writers in a national sense, or just helping writers from Cleveland exist and get recognized um, in our larger, you know, American literary scene. Um, and that's something, you know, we both end up thinking quite a lot about uh, working at CSU, which is regional public university here, working at an MFA program here. Um, and, you know, both Zach and I are transplants to Cleveland. We kind of found ourselves here. Um, <laughs> so I just wanted to, like, some of the factors when I think about this, like, regional role or being someone, um, you know, I worked as an editor and publisher a long time in a bunch of different ways. And then I ended up here um, doing that work in a way that you try to get it to serve both locally and make connections kind of nationally, internationally in some cases. Um, you know, that's a complex sort of responsibility to think about. Um, what does it mean to be regional and to serve the local? So, you know, some factors that I end up thinking about is like, okay, like Cleveland's a post-industrial city. It has a lot of 
economic struggles um, in national media. It's uh, sometimes called America's poorest big city. Um, you know, Cleveland is a majority black city with a past and present of anti-black racism, redlining and segregation. And we see that show up a lot in its academic, um, cultural and media organizations. We see that kind of history being there. Um, we're also in the Rust Belt, which is like, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> Maybe we're in the Midwest. That seems to be like a little bit of a debate. Um, are we in the Midwest? Uh, we're a blue city in what is now a pretty red state. Um, and, you, you know, even in the past few years, we've watched as like national media has these certain kind of needs or desires or preconceptions and stereotypes for kind of what they want from the Midwest or what they think that a place like Cleveland or Ohio might be saying or about. Um, you know, I'm thinking of our newest senator-elect, and it's a bummer to say this, is J.D. Vance, you know, who rose, you know, he rose to prominence through that book, Hillbilly Allergy, which the sort of national media kind of like fed on, and it was promoted very successfully as sort of, you know, speaking a truth from Ohio from this area of kind of like showing, you know, why it's gone from blue to red, et cetera, of speaking for the quote unquote white working class, which is, you know, media seems to be endlessly fascinated by that subject. Um, so those are some of the factors, you know, kind of broadly put that I end up kind of thinking about or watching them appear in different ways. And I'm just, you know, I wanted to share some of mine to kind of invite conversation. I'm just sort of, what are the ways that you all think about that read the regional aspects of literary Cleveland's work, um, how you approach them. Any thoughts you want to share just on like the literature and writing of Northeast Ohio and what you'd like people to know about it? If anyone wants to dive in. <laughs> no, thank you for providing some of that context. We cite some of those same things a lot. Um, mm -hmm. The poverty statistics, the segregation statistics, the legacy of racism, um, one that you didn't mention that's tied into all of those is the low literacy rates, um, yeah. uh, worst outcomes for black women. So yes, there's like, we cannot do our work as though those realities do not exist. Um, and it's also, I think, why part of the role that we maybe have not sought out, but have found ourselves in is less of a driver and more of a coordinator that, um, so thinking about the regional literary ecosystem as an ecosystem that has all these players that in Cleveland also exist, some pretty remarkable independent bookstores, um, more than two great library systems. There's also, <laughs> there's a, a stupid amount of library systems in Northeast Ohio. Yeah. Um, and some really great independent publishers, you all included, um, CSU Poetry Center included. Um, um, not to mention many other exciting organizations that have been popping up um, from Cleveland to Cleveland Review of Books. Um, you know, Belt Publishing is one that is explicitly regional. Uh, and so part of, I think, what we're starting to find our role is, is helping coordinate between that. Like, how can we all be working in the same direction? How can we all be collaborating that we don't have to duplicate efforts that we can um, tie together um, publications as part of the curriculum that's coming out of our programs or the writers that come out of our programs getting published in some of these publications that like it can be, it can feed on itself in like a positive cycle. This is one of the reasons that we coordinated with 
and it's filled with book awards and Great Lakes African American Writers Conference to move our incubator writing conference to Cleveland Book Week. And that actually feels like maybe the best example of how we've been thinking about this in terms of what you're talking about. Many cities have book festivals. Many of them look like either bringing in really big name writers from out of town and just having events that often cost a lot of money um, or other ones that are, um, I'm from Cincinnati, they have books in the banks that feature local authors in sort of like a big hall and you can go around and visit many of them too. Um, uh, there's a couple other models too, but um, what's unique about Cleveland Book Week, first of all, it's anchored by the Ennisfield Book Awards, which has an 80 plus year history recognizing books that celebrate diversity and address racism. And the legacy of that, those award winners is remarkable. <laughs> and how they've caught, they've identified some really groundbreaking authors early in their careers before they've won other awards is really exciting too. Um, not, and then pre, in recent years, they've made their award ceremony public. So it's not this black tie dinner affair, but it's something that the community is invited to. And they have those writers read in non-traditional spaces, often that have to do with their books. So just this past year, Victoria Chang read Obit at Lakeview Cemetery in a mausoleum, just like spectacular. So bringing writing into unconventional spaces and connecting with other community organizations. So there, and all of those events are free, some of the highest quality writing um, in the country. Great Lakes African American Conference is a regional writing conference for black writers and has been putting together a really exciting program um, that is also free <laughs> for people to attend. And our writing conference, which was in July, um, is uh, really meant to be free um, classes, workshops, craft talks, um, and events that help people advance their skills, come together and bring sort of community together. So we brought that conference, you know, we brought all those things together into a book week that I think is kind of unique in the country in the way that it operates and how it tries to foster local writers, how it connects them to really exciting national writers, how it's thinking regionally. This was the first year that we sort of were inviting people um, up from Columbus, over from Pittsburgh, from Detroit. Um, and so the more we can regionalize in that way has been really helpful too. And the idea is that if, if that can, that sort of coordination can continue and the sort of um, positive reinforcement cycle that can happen that, as I said, when writers are published in these places and then can be read back to the community, um, that that can have a real difference and help ideally generate the kind of writers that complicate those narratives that you're talking about. That mm -hmm. it's not just that we're getting, we, so we think about this all the time at a hyper-local level, that there's certain neighborhoods of town that we hear a ton of, like you can hear about all the cool stuff that's happening in Lakewood and in Tremont and in Ohio City. And if you live in Kinsman or Mount Pleasant, Glenville, Glenville mm -hmm. that you only get the two narratives. You only get, here's all the crime that's happening here. You get the crime statistics in the newspaper, or you get the occasional like feel good story about mm -hmm. one person making a difference. And you're like, there's a whole spectrum of lives in between there that are not getting articulated. There's a whole history that's missing here. And so how can we bring forth writers that are 
complicating those narratives that are challenging them. You know, I'm thinking about the belt book that explicitly took on JD Vance's book that like <laughs> uh, was a very exciting counterpoint to it that um, poked holes in all the sort of narrative simplicity that was happening there. So if we can together elevate that kind of more complicated, deeper thinking, writing, and the pathways to help people write, do that work. I think that's that's sort of where we see our um, regional focus. I can say, I would like to say that one of the things that is important to me that we do, and this also speaks to the sort of, you know, racial climate and economic climate is we try to hire as many instructors as we can that are writers here. Because like you said, because of this region, because of the difficulties, because of all the sort of biases and prejudices, obstacles, a lot of the writers here aren't publishing and, and, and aren't able to sort of support themselves. And so it's really important to me whenever we have a call for proposals, we have the opportunity to give people work uh, that, you know, so that they can continue to make their art, we do that. <laughs> and, and we're very sort of strategic and very deliberate about making sure that those opportunities are spread out and, and that we include sort of everyone in the ecosystem. Um, and so I think that's a really important part too. Can I it's turn the back on, on you all and ask how it <laughs> plays a role in everything from the books that you're taking on as projects to sort of maybe even the writers that you're inviting in for some reading series? Yeah, I can start and then I'll... <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the, the CSU Poetry Center... Um, this is our 60th year of existing. And it's interesting to say our because I'm not I'm not 60. <laughs> no. Um just for full disclosure. Uh you know, it's been around a long time. It started off running community workshops and publishing kind of um, smaller scale publications, broadsides, chapbooks, that kind of thing. And then it expanded into a um, kind of national press in the early 70s. And at a certain point, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, its its publishing program became more kind of explicitly national, right? It wasn't, did not have a particularly regional focus. And in fact, in order to sort of, um, you know, maintain a kind of, integrity in its university setting, it, it, it doesn't publish CSU or NEO-MFA students or alums um, because that might kind of complicate it, the idea that it's independent or et cetera, et cetera. And also it runs contests. So it needs to like show that it's not favoring um, people that are like in the room with us or something. <laughs> um, but, you know, what that does is it you know, there's there's a purpose that that serves and I understand it, but also shuts, shuts it down or, or makes it less a, isn't prioritizing being a venue for regional work in the same way, right? So then what it's doing is it's bringing, you know, publishing books here and bringing those writers and that writing here. Um, and that is probably one of the things that we do that, if, you know, if I'm going to answer my question about what being most fired up, <laughs> it's, um, it's hosting reading, right? It's hosting readings where we bring some of our authors we have maybe some local writers who are reading there too. We have some other writers who we're just like so excited about. Um, and our CSU students are there, grad students are there, other local writers and members of the kind of local community are there and get to, everyone's meeting each other. Um, you know, and the writers who come and visit really remember Cleveland um, and they like write back and they stay connected, you know, 
to us or to students or other people that they met um, and they have a better sense of Cleveland and it's kind of seen. Um, and so I think that's part, that's part of what we're doing maybe is being a little bit of a node of connection, but it's not as much um, publishing regional work. Uh, although we are like, we're, we are teaching here at CSU and in the NEOMFA. And I think of both of those roles as really complementarily to, um, you know, a number of the, I thought, very brilliant things that you, you said, <laughs> um, you know, of helping students find find their voice and develop skills and identify, like, consider and identify, um, you know, writing and editing and art, artistic practice as, as something that they could be part of their working lives and their daily lives um, and sort of supporting, doing that kind of both broad humanities work and also writing specific work. And I love how the Neo MFA in particular, which is, you know, our MFA program that we're part of here, um, really like it's a site of regional writing. Like, you know, our grad students are writing books that are really about Cleveland and from Cleveland. And that is, um, feels like a really beautiful thing. Um, and it's like an immersion further into the city in new ways every semester for, um, for me as someone in this room. Maybe I'll ping it over to Zach and I should, oh, wait, before I do that, I wanna also credit Zach. We did a really cool event last week with a refugee oh. response. Um, and uh, that was another you know, way that it felt exciting to bring um, you know, some writers and work with that group and have um, folks who were part of the refugee response come and hear from some of these writers that we had connections to who had, um, you know, lived experience as refugees. Um, so that was the kind of event that we felt excited about. Um, and Zach is also works with the Cleveland Review of Books as editor-in-chief there, which is another kind of pathway of, of the regional. Yeah, totally. Um, uh, second second everything. Um, and I, I, feel, I feel compelled to put, yeah, just like maybe, it's like the most like liberal arts answer, you can, style of answering you can do, where it's like, how does what you do affect the world? And you're like, it doesn't, it does it in the secret way you can't see, that's so important, right? But truly I think that, yeah, while we aren't, with the exception of like occasional editorial projects such as uh, Russell Atkins collected mm -hmm. Worlded Too Much a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, I mean, we're not like publishing work by, you know, like regional authors, but what I think we are doing, which, you know, Hillary kind of, traced is kind of like creating these like local touch points for much more national and in some cases international like literary um conversations and just like sites of cultural production right so like we're publishing you know works in translation that like have never appeared in english before and it's like well how does that matter to cleveland well it's like some CSU students like helped make that happen and like worked on that manuscript and like, you know, made that a thing in the world. So it's not maybe as visible, but, you know, I feel like it's, it's important to like, remember that, you know, this is a, it sounds like it's a university press, even though it's technically not, um, though it's housed in a university and that university is, you know, uh, an urban public, mostly commuter, you know, uh, we'll say, I can't, I'm saying this as someone not from here, but Rust Belt City, you know, like has all the problems that um, we know that it has. And, you know, getting to just like, uh, yeah, I guess I like create those access points um, 
in like a more what could be a kind of a professional thing or part of a professional pathway or professional snowball the way we think of our careers um you know that's to me that's like directly related right to to region um and then also yeah i mean on the programming front right like uh it's exciting to bring writers to cleveland right um it's exciting it's exciting to bring anybody to cleveland right um and uh especially to get to do it you know it's to do it on campus right to create these opportunities for um folks in the csu community to like hear you know in some cases, I think like some of like the coolest writers that are currently alive and working, you know, but that's it's a small scene. Um, uh, and then, you know, maybe doubly so when we get the opportunity to do something that's like more directly, um, you know, even like expanding out out from our CSU community like we did with that refugee response event. Um, you know, we try to do things pretty balanced between like on campus and then like out in the city. Um, and I think something we're continuing to explore is like, how do we, you know, find like cool little crossovers that might somehow have like an aesthetic way in right to a certain like community um, that we don't normally, you know, like interface with or like doesn't know we exist or like doesn't like realize, I, I don't know, there's this whole like network of sort of literary uh, opportunity here that is not just like obviously located in the region but interested in like regionality as like an aspect of like the work itself you know what i mean yeah that's making me think of two things one is there's there's a dan there's a danger of too much of either side of the spectrum like we hear from local writers and artists who can be very frustrated sometimes if they see all this local arts funding going to pay gigantic fees for someone from out of town to be flown in. Mm -hmm. And that's where the majority of the money goes or something. And you're just like, yeah, that feels terrible. <laughs> that like, how can we foster what's here? But on the other side, if it becomes so insular that we're not getting a good stream of really exciting, invigorating writing that's going to come in and make us think differently, then it becomes yet another bubble in a way that's not helpful. Um, and so we're we're constantly, I think maybe all of us, trying to course correct when you see ourselves bear do too much of one or the other thing. Um, and so that role that you all play um, to bring in really exciting writers is a benefit to the community at large. Is is it's only going to enrich us and make us better. And then the other thing that, as you were saying, just occurred to me is we're maybe thinking of regional writing as like specifically place based. But I think part of what I see CSU Poetry Center doing is um, elevating aesthetics that might otherwise fall out of the marketplace. That that really exciting writing that at um, the big five and even some of the major indies might not find a home, but that not only is valuable, but is essential. That like <laughs> that that specific aesthetic, that move, that those voices, the um, approach, um, as you said, voices in translation. We all know the problems of how little gets translated into English. Um, like that we may not think of that as regional in the, in the sense of like Midwestern or Rust Belt, but it's, um, it's maybe one of these eddies, you know, <laughs> in the larger current 
that are, I think, often what gets us excited about writing in the first place is, is those strange things that are happening, mutating on, on the side. Yeah, I mean, we don't want to pat ourselves on the back and say we're we're definitely doing that, but like that is our hope, right? That like not in like yeah, I think we I think this is the case with much like small press, you know, um output or small press aesthetics, right? Are often things that are like difficult or challenging yeah. um or uh sometimes not even fun to read, right? Like there's a deeper question of like, well, is reading supposed to be fun? Is art always supposed to be fun? Right? Um, yeah. This is like a crisis. Uh, maybe I'm personally projecting out of the conversation, <laughs> but I think that those are questions that, when obviously for financial reasons, right? Like uh, other questions of like accountability can't really be explored, right? Uh, on like a like a big five stage, and so there's this like small way that. Yeah, I mean, we we hope that that's the case, right? We like, I think we have a mission to publish things that maybe wouldn't otherwise find homes in those bigger places. And I, I would like to think, at least personally, I can't speak for like the press, that the result of doing that over time starts to build or like signal that, oh, well, Cleveland is a, as a place is maybe friendly to that, you know? Um, I was going to say that. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say that I think that you and Matt and Hillary have all touched on something that's really important as though I am a Cleveland native. And so you develop as a writer. And like you were talking about, Matt, there, there can be a bubble, right? There's a scene. It's a local scene. It's all the writers in the same places going to the same open mics. And so, the, you know, you can bouncing off of each other in similar ways. I've been, I guess, you know, writing in, in Cleveland since and going out and reading out and meeting up with other writers since like 1999. We all know each other. <laughs> we all grew up together. So I do think that the work you do of bringing, um, you know, writers from other places in, to sort of say, well, this is what we're talking about and this is what we're doing. And these are some other ways that you can sort of write uh, is really important. And I think what we do with the Flash Fiction Festival and non and not, you know, and Flash nonfiction is the same thing. And then there's that inner, you know, that's that interchange. The, these people come in and see that Cleveland has something to offer. And when they come in, those of us who live in Cleveland and who are sort of rooted here, see that there's other things. And, and that's a really important, and so in, in every way, everybody's art sort of gets better. And like you said, the idea that Cleveland has something to give is sort of, you know, on both ends. Other people realize that Cleveland has something to give. People here, because when you think about all the, the, the context you gave about, you know, this being a poor place, a segregated place, we also need to be reminded that there's more than that happening here. Right. And so, yeah, I, I think that that is a really important aspect of what we all do. And I think it's like when you, you all were talking about the importance that like Cleveland of employing and right of like being like, OK, you can be a writer and teach here. Like that's something that can happen. You can have a life doing that. Um, you know, it feels important, you know, to have students and like editing a publishing class or like working in the press and be like, you can have a press, like you can make your own press, like you can make your own reading series. 
um, it doesn't all have to flow through New York, which doesn't in, like include anyone, you know, like, I mean, I think, you know, me and Zach are maybe on the vibe on this, but it's just like a lot of our, you know, teaching or teaching at any publishing class here is like, just kind of like anti-New York, <laughs> you know, where you're just like, or you're just like, New York is not the world, right? Like this yeah. is the world. And, you know, people in this room can go start something and, you know, we can try to empower everyone to do that. And I think, you know, when I think of like the classes at like Cleveland, both like the students in that room can look at their instructor and be like, oh, I could, I could learn how to teach a class. I could learn how to like help build something like this. And the instructors there are getting to think like, okay, like I can be where I am and have a life in reading and writing and, um, and in that kind of community. And so, yeah. It just makes me think of somebody like Cortez, who's just a second grade teacher for CMSD and wrote a collection of poems about that experience. And it's very rooted in the sort of, you know, fraught history of CMSD and Cleveland, his own experience growing up here, teaching here, being a father here, uh, you know. And like you said, he he didn't have to go anywhere. But that book became sort of a phenomenon at, at, a, at, a, at a state level and then I think at a national level. And even though he got the recognition uh, at that level, he didn't leave. He still lives here, <laughs> you know. And so it's amazing to have that because, like you said, that shows the, the next generation of young African-American writers um, people who come out of CMSD, which is this school system that doesn't have some sort of August reputation, uh, people who, you know, he even, even is very honest and candid about having learning difficulties and all of those things. It, it, it's really important, I think, like you said, to have writers who are here and to put them in front of learning writers, developing writers, student writers, and let them know that, like, it's in the mission statement that Cleveland is a center uh, for literature uh, and and, and hopefully, while we're doing that, help with the literacy issue as well. Mm -hmm. I feel like the other person we have to call out is Kevin Latimer, who's just like mm -hmm. an unstoppable creative force that just keeps coming up with new projects and initiatives that are just like thrilling to have in Cleveland. Barnhouse is a really exciting journal. They had a really great reading series. Um, Cleveland is a really exciting poetry press that has a different kind of model and has been working really well. And man, if, if at his age, someone was like, you could start all these things, I would have been like, <laughs> I wish you realized how much more of a follower I am than somebody like Kevin, who was just like, I'm going to create it out of whole cloth. And the more you can encourage people to do that, the more exciting things there are going to be in the city. And so just need to shout out how much of a badass Kevin is. I was so much braver when I was young. Like, I was so stupid. I was like, yeah, I could start press. Yeah. <laughs> but how good were you at answering emails? You know. <laughs> um, Back to you. Do you want to? Yeah, I'll ask, I'll ask the next question. Now that all of our hearts are aflame with commitment and mission statement, senses of purpose, uh, we're going to ask you a, uh, a very dry question. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's a little dry, but it's, it's, it's actually like something that's at the center of like kind of the, the concerns of this like podcast and the questions, the, the things that we're trying to explore um, on top of like all of this important, right? Like mission stuff. Like, of course we all love writing. Of course we all love like bringing that to people. Like we wouldn't even be here. Um, but we're also, we're just interested too in sort of like the, the logistics of that, right? Um, some of the more material concerns, which, um, you know, obviously so far we're all, 
like, <laughs> you know, intimately familiar with, right? Sort of the difficulties of um, making a living doing this type of work through adjuncting, through uh, nonprofit, part-time, cobbling the jobs together type hustles. So, um, you know, because we're interested in like sustainability, right? And like the practice of um, small press and like literary programming and publishing, um, I think that means that we're also interested in like structure and systems, right? Um, because like, how can you, how can you do this stuff if you don't have sort of a model in place for, um, keeping yourself going in, um, certainly like we have all these like spiritual commitments or whatever, but like, you know, um, in like those more material ways. Um, so we wanted to just ask you right about literary Cleveland in that context. So, you know, we know that literary Cleveland is a nonprofit with a board. Um, obviously you work to keep your classes affordable and widely accessible, you have some full-time staff as well as some part-time um, folks who teach regularly. And maybe there are folks who are like teaching and, you know, maybe like keep coming back to teach again and again, you know what I mean? Um, so we were just wondering if you could clarify that. I don't know. Can you just like describe the structure of the organization for us? I know this is like, we're really like shooting the <laughs> the balloon out of the clouds, but this is like, you know, at least, least the other half of it right yeah i hope people came to this podcast to talk about like our 990 like let's get into it i'm fascinated by 990s actually but go on i did spend uh a day last week googling a bunch of 990s of other arts organizations but in any case um okay let me i'll talk broadly and then i do want to get to the challenge because i think um you know what there's no um ethical actions under late capital. Like there's there's no way to do this that's gonna feel entirely ethical. And so you try to develop systems that feel as fair as possible and you try to make them fairer over time. Um, we, so uh, we're still small. We're, um, as you said, started in 2015, 501c3 in 2016. Um, since before the pandemic, the size of the organization is about doubled both in number of classes, number of hours, number of members, number of participants. Um, but also in budget too. So it's about twice as big as it was in 2018, 2019. Um, half, maybe half, it's, it's roughly half and half. Half the revenue is comes from programs and half the revenue comes from development, whether grants or donations, um, which is a pretty healthy mix. Um, we've seen other arts organizations that are primarily grants and donations. And then when one funder or one donor backs out, then like, programs and jobs get cut. And that's, you know, sort of a, a dangerous in terms of sustainability balance. Um, at the same time, I think I struggle the most with the programming, the paid programming that brings in half the revenue. Um, some of that, most of that is coming from our ongoing classes that are all different lengths, all different genres, all different levels um, that are meant to be sort of just there and waiting for a writer for whatever they need next. If you've not written in a while and you got to get started up again, if you've written something, you need feedback, you've gotten feedback, you need to get published. Um, you want to learn something new. You want to go deep on a topic. So like all of those exist there. Um, and the sort of economic model for those is that if you get at least five or six people to attend that class, then you've made enough to pay that instructor and anything else can help fund these staff positions that help this whole thing keep going. Um, 
Now, how do you how do you balance what the cost is to participants with what you're paying the instructor so that in an ideal world, you are charging nothing, that <laughs> this is 100% accessible for everybody, and you're paying your instructors above rate so that you're you know rewarding them for what it is. In reality, man, that's impossible. So <laughs> we, we right now are on a model that is almost, um, it's, it's definitely on the side of making it more affordable for people locally, which means that our instructors get paid a little less. Um, and from what we've seen with our like peers nationally, um, our classes are about a third of the cost as they are somewhere else. So to take a four week or a six week or an eight week class with us is anywhere from like 80 to 120 to 160 bucks, something like that. And similar classes in other cities in organizations like ours are going to be 200, $300 for that. And I, man, I feel really tough about that, that like, um, that means our instructors don't get paid as much, which means that it's, it's going to be, it's creating almost a similar structure to the problems that are with adjuncting, that if you can't make a sustainable living from just teaching literary Cleveland classes, then only the people that we can get to teach are people that can do this on top of what else they do. So there's a couple of people who exist as freelancers, and this is one element of their income. And there's other people who have day jobs doing something else and then teach with us. In an ideal world, we could develop a instructor base that is somehow salaried. <laughs> We've been doing a lot of thinking about this and haven't found a model yet, that, but we're, that's something we're thinking towards. On the other hand, if your classes are two or $300 for four or six weeks, who can take that class? Who is that for? Mm -hmm. who, who are we then saying gets to learn to be writers outside the academy? And how is it not just the same people that have <laughs> privilege? And so, th man, this is what I, my conscience struggles with all that. This is what keeps me up at night, honestly, is like, I want to pay my instructors as much as I can, and I want to make the classes as low cost or free as possible. So it's really great that this year we were able to add um, scholarships that um, even the low cost, like an $80 class now can be free if you can't afford that $80. And I want that person to be able to attend. That's like an essential piece that we're adding. And then I think the future pieces that we're hoping to layer on that might be grant funded, or we might have to come up with like a really complicated income structure for is the more long-term sustainability of the instructors um, and how much they're paid too. But I don't know about you two or all, all of us on this call. Um, I'm not an economist. I did not go to school for business. Like <laughs> my background is flipping like sentences. <laughs> it's like. That's the part of the staff meeting where I always get very quiet and Ryan <laughs> who, who does who does development, Matt and Ryan and in our staff meetings, we section it off and we talk about programming and we talk about funding. I listen and I try to learn, but I, I'm like, <laughs> but I but I will say I can vouch for um Matt when he talks about the commitment to really trying to figure that out. It's a conversation that we have all the time. And, and even when we come up with a new program, there's always a very sort of intense conversation about what is what is fair 
if we're going to ask somebody to be a mentor and be available to two writers for six months, how can we compensate them for that time? They're going to have to prep. They're going to have to take phone calls. They're going to have to take emails. They're going to have to read manuscripts. We have to, you know, we have to pay them in a way that honors all the effort uh, and talent and knowledge and and, and sort of um, expertise that that's going to require. And, and that is a conversation that we have again and again and again. It, I, I can vouch for that. I mean, how, I'm genuinely curious to hear how you all think about this, because as someone that doesn't have a background in nonprofit, in development, in business, and, and any of that, like, you just feel like you're, you're learning it all for the first time and trying to do a good job under an unfair economic system that we all live under. <laughs> I, how much do you all have to deal with that at the press? And how does that interact with, like, the university and... Well, I don't know, you know, about you guys, but I just like, I just do math just perfectly the first time, every time. <laughs> and my, you know, my money always doubles. I just, oh, um, no, I mean, we're, <laughs> like, we're really sympathetic. Um, you know, and I work with, I've worked with a number of presses um, in different models through the years. And some weirdly, I think the nonprofits I've worked at have been a lot richer than the businesses, Like they were nonprofits that, we're, we're very old and I was going to say well endowed. I don't know if we can say that, um, you know, like, but they, you, you know, can't they, hit on them. Yeah. 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 I didn't, I was respectful. <laughs> like, uh, you know, and I work, I work as another at rescue press, which is just among, it's just a group of friends and the money is, is very informal. It's, you know, the press kind of makes some money and, and our money flows into it. Um, I mean, we don't embezzle from it, but we like fund it. Like, um, uh, or if we do, I don't think it's illegal because it's not. That's fine. Um, yeah, people do that all the time. Uh, and then see if the CSU Poetry Center has, you know, like um, we're part of the we're housed in the university, but our money doesn't belong to the university. If that makes sense, it's separate, but it's also accounted for by the university, which you know it's not. We don't always kind of know how much money we have. You know, it's it's very obscure and it's not efficient. Um, and it's sort of um you know, like the money is managed responsibly and it's there, but also it's kind of hilarious to interact with, you know, like, it's just like none of it's efficient and all of it involves, like, we just finished doing sales reports and royalties. It's very funny <laughs> like to just the kind of, well, you know, like math and, and, and it's nice to get to like send people notes and send people checks and stuff like that. But also, you know, they're all sort of, you know, no one's making a lot of money from poetry. So you're sort of always wondering, is this the best model? Like, should we, is it worth kind of doing all this infrastructure to send this to send? I don't know. Like, so these questions are very live for us. I mean, we have a 200 title backlist. So we have, you know, all of these contracts that we're responsible for, and we need to kind of um, keep shepherding things according to the models under which, you know, they were originally agreed. So um, you, you can't, sort of restart things new every time you were kind of a, a, a stable entity um, as I'm sure is the case there you know like once something's set in motion you kind of have to keep if you're going to adapt that model you need to do it very gradually and responsibly um, along the way so you know in the 20 almost 20 years I've been in publishing right so so much has changed it's like the technology got so much cheaper to print and produce books but at the same time um the profit margin on sales decreased so dramatically um 
and that it's kind of hard to know how that math is going <laughs> to, is going to work out. Like it hasn't been, you know, there was a sudden proliferation of small presses and we got to, you know, we all got to kind of start a thing because you, you could get the programs for, you know, you could like lay the books out, like you could do all that. But at the same time, like then Amazon was on the rise and all of these, um, you know, we're making less and less money per book and we don't really have very good access to the larger sales channels um, through which you might sell at a high volume. And in fact, if that's going to happen, a lot of the times it happens through very local networks, right? Like when a book blows up, it does it in a kind of specific way. Um, so those are like, is that even about money? That's kind of, a, whenever you notice, like you asked a question about money and I just started... <laughs> I we might not know conceptual. We're not sure what money is. Yeah, <laughs> that's the problem. Here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and then also, I mean, just to like go off that too, I mean, I think another factor, like we were talking about like access to like larger sales channels. Yeah. It's also very much the case. That's like, well, even if we did, would we sell more books? I, you know, <laughs> I mean, the things that we're publishing are not necessarily, you know, like, popular or um widely you know uh enjoyable right like certain kinds of work certain aesthetics certain priorities that we might believe in right and like think need to exist regardless of uh whether they return a profit or not like that's that's like in intrinsic to the the press right that's like the the point of like being a small press um i think that you know, it's this weird cyclical thing, right? So it's like, um, if we wanted to do that, right? If we wanted to like become profitable, we'd also have to like change everything that like we mm -hmm. value mm -hmm. about literature as like a site of like difficult intellectual um, work and like conversations and strangeness, <laughs> you know? Um, but that's like, that's a unique crisis for us um, and probably for other small presses that, you know, have a similar kind of aesthetic, but yeah, you know, it's no one's, no one's, no one's make a lot of money on, on poetry is, is what you said before. And it's true. <laughs> uh, this, this is also why I love reading about and, and fascinated from a distance about um, presses like new directions where the model is the backlist. Like the model mm -hmm. is this book will be profitable when this writer wins the Nobel, like when this writer mm -hmm. is taught in college classrooms in 30 years. And man, what a gamble, like what a, what a long-sighted <laughs> experimental gamble that they have played. And so when it pays off um, and then that can fund the next generation of really bizarre, exciting experimental stuff that could eventually, you know, be making it into college classrooms and textbooks and things like that. Um, now, how big is the market, you know, for that? I don't know. That's, and then the other thing it's making me think of is our um, literary journal. So uh, before I um, was on the staff at Literary Cleveland, I was invited to help create Gordon Square Review, which is, this ties into a lot of things we've been talking about. Part of the model we thought about was, is there a way that you can bridge the local, national, international literary communities so that writers from Cleveland can get a spotlight at a larger um, range and they can be bringing in writers from elsewhere to publish in a local place, um, which is a, a great idea. And uh, we've sort of decided over time that it just 
going to be a money losing model. That what we've done is all submissions are free, all contributors and editors are paid. You know, nobody has to pay to read the um, journal, and we have to afford a website and submittable. And so it's just a fixed cost every year that thankfully we can cover from our other programs that we do and from some grants that cover general operating. But we've just sort of decided that like, okay, that's a place where we can be ethical, even if it means we're losing that amount of money every year, because it's worth it. Like, as you said, that's where art happens. And so we'd rather have that be a site where they can publish exciting things and have local writers be editors and local writers be volunteer readers and have mentorships that help propel new writers up. Um, but we have to have this other portion of literary Cleveland that is money-making so that we can afford to lose money on things like that mm -hmm. um, and afford to pay. Well, yeah, we didn't even talk about that. How do you afford uh, the people who are working here? Like, we just described what Michelle and I do, which is often the jobs of whole teams of people that like truly, <laughs> we try to make it look like 10 people work here or 15 people work here. And until a month ago, three people worked here and Michelle and Ryan were three quarters time, you know? So uh, you also feel, I also feel a tremendous sense of responsibility towards being able to make ends meet so that we can pay them fairly for the like extraordinary amount of work that they do um, as extremely talented people. And so, um, yeah, I don't have an exit of this, <laughs> of this <laughs> anecdote other than it's extremely hard. My, um, you know, my mentor, when I first started working in publishing, he was um, a genius named Pam Thompson. Um, you know, she, she sort of taught me like the, the classic publishing wisdom was just lose money responsibly. You know? <laughs> that that's how the, the business was, was kind of meant to work. And, you know, James Laughlin of New Directions is, is a prime example of that because he was just spending his family's fortune, right? Like he was, um, that's what he was up to. Um, and I think one of the other pieces of advice I often remember, I mean, there's many, but the other, the other one was don't expect people to be rational. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, that's really been, you know, because sometimes I catch myself in a moment. I'm like, no, don't expect, don't expect that. Don't expect that. That sounds like my, my adage. Anytime we have, like we send out an email and there's like two or three people who haven't emailed us back. I always ask Matt, are they poets? <laughs> and and, you, and usually they are usually they are like don't yeah. you, you just have to be realistic when you're dealing with poets it's a it's a it's a very special breed I, and I can I feel like I can say that because I am one but yeah. Yeah. Matt's like he's always like Michelle's so hard on the poets I'm like I know my people <laughs> <laughs> well I know you guys have been so generous with your time and also um so insightful about all this work um I was going to close and with a question. I was thinking of like how a job interview ends and they're always like, do you have any questions for us? <laughs> it's like, uh, so, but I love how you've already, um, you know, asked us some questions and I wish, I wish all podcasts were like, the, like that. I was listening, I was driving, I was on a nine hour drive um, on Wednesday and I was listening to Fresh Air and I was like, I wish someone would just ask Terry Gross some kind of like, what motivates you to ask that question? Like, <laughs> um, anyway, but I was just kind of curious, um, like it, in talking about and thinking about this work, um, like what, what do you wish there was like more conversation about? Like, um, and maybe we can then make that happen or something with this podcast. Like, 
are there things you want to hear other literary workers like dish on or talk about or like um <laughs> like what do we all need to be talking to each other about more I I think that it might be cool to have and it's a conversation when we have our festivals we usually have a publishers roundtable editors roundtable at the end of it so uh it's the sort of closing event for the flash fiction festival and for flash nonfiction festival and i think we did it for poetry hillary you were i think on that panel when we did poetry festival last year but i think people do like to have conversations about what gets you published mm-hmm. i i, I think i think writers never get tired of conversations that where people kind of talk about qualities of work that they're looking for and, you know, what they're thinking about or, you know, when they're picking the people that get to sort of, you know, go into a journal or get a book published. Like I have a manuscript right now and I just got a rejection yesterday. And what it said is, oh, we can't send you any feedback. We could just tell you no. Mm. And so, you know, and and I've been writing for a long time. So the rejection didn't piss me off. But the fact that they couldn't tell me anything to help me with, you know, improving it or making it more readable or more publishable did. So I think people never get tired of of, of some version of that conversation. Writers don't get tired of some version of that conversation. Absolutely. It's yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think we already you led the discussion towards, I think, one of the things that I'm interested in, and it sounds like one of the things the podcast is interested in, which is sort of the economics and ethics of publishing and writing and how the system is set up in such a way that inevitably certain people are going to succeed and fail because of how we built who gets paid and who's making the decisions. Um, and so we we talked about that a little bit with how we've tried to set up our system and maybe how you know, the CSU Poetry Center publishes. But we also just started touching on the fact that in the United States, philanthropy is like the primary lifeblood of doing this ethically. And is that still ethical? When in other countries, the amount of arts funding that comes from taxes um, is significantly higher. So we just... On a, we're on assembly for the arts call where they somebody asked about this and they're like, why is the, you know, jazz festival in Montreal like one of the best in the world and why can't the one that happens here in Cleveland be? And they're like, well, we looked into that and guess how much of the funding for that is coming <laughs> from Montreal? It's coming from Quebec, and it's like, well, we don't. We've just eroded all of the funding that goes to universities, that goes to arts, that goes to library, like all of that has only gone percentage-wise less and less over time until we start having conversations about how to, you know, reverse those trends. We're going to still keep getting the same outcomes. We're going to keep getting only the people who have safety nets and generational can succeed. Um, Now, thankfully, there's some funders in town who are starting to be ready to have these conversations that start to recognize the sort of paternalistic role that they play and how dangerous and top-down that can be. And it's really exciting when those folks start to wake up and ask different kinds of questions. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad that you're looking into and asking folks some of these questions too. It's like, what, 
at a small level individually, how are we negotiating this? But at a larger level, what do we need to be doing to change the system? I think thanks. So thank you for that was that's exactly the conversation I'm curious about and interested in talking about. I was gonna I was gonna say, and I am saying I guess like, oh, cool. oh yeah, like I bet JD Vance, because he's like such a he's a writer. I bet he's gonna find <laughs> writer's writer. We'll, we'll see if he'll be the keynote for yeah. our next uh yeah. Um, sorry, uh, that's depressing. Um, <laughs> thank you both so much. Um, it was absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, and we'll look forward to seeing you more soon at an event out and about in town. Um, and thanks for sharing, sharing all your wisdom and insight, um, into these fields and programs. Yeah, for real. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And excited to hear the other the other episodes too. I can't wait. Yeah. yeah. So are we. <laughs> <laughs>